Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is your host this afternoon for this book forum. Uh, uh, the um, forum is here, of course, to uh, mark the publication of uh, Elizabeth Foley's uh, new book, uh, The Tea Party, Three Principles. Uh, shortly after the 2008 elections, as the Bush and uh, Obama administration's various bailouts sought to tame the Great Recession, the Tea Party movement came onto the American scene. Several uh, sources claim paternity or maternity, as the case may be, uh, but it's generally agreed that Rick Santelli's uh, CNBC rant heard round the world, the February 19, 2009 blast at Obama's mortgage bailout, accusing the government of promoting bad behavior, uh, brought the uh, nascent Tea Party to national prominence, after which the rest is history, as we say. Uh, there followed the 2009 summer of discontent, largely over the Obamacare machinations, the stormy uh, congressional uh, town hall meetings during the August recess, uh, the elections of uh, governors um, Bob McDonnell in uh, Virginia and Chris Christie in New Jersey. Uh, and then, um, uh, shockingly, uh, the, the January 2010 election of Scott Brown uh, to fill the um, seat that was vacated after the death of the sainted uh, Senator Ted Kennedy in Massachusetts. And in all three elections, the Tea Party played a prominent role, uh, if not a decisive role. Um, but it was only uh, the beginning, although Democrats and some uh, establishment Republicans dismissed or ridiculed the movement, uh, its influence only grew as the two 2010 midterm elections unfolded, uh, resulting in November in the biggest swing in electoral results since 1938, or even earlier if state and local uh, results are taken into account. So what is it about the movement that has animated so many Americans, both for and against, and what are the implications for this year's elections? That's what we're here today to discuss, focusing on a new book uh, that has just come out from the Cambridge University Press by Professor Elizabeth uh, Price Foley, uh, who fastens on three core Tea Party principles, limited government, unapologetic US sovereignty, and constitutional originalism. Let me introduce Professor Foley uh, now, after which she'll talk about her book for about 20 or 25 minutes. Uh, I'll then introduce our two commentators uh, before each speaks, uh, after which we'll have an exchange among our speakers and then open it up to questions from the audience, followed by lunch upstairs in the George M. Lager, uh, Yeager Conference Center. Uh, let me know, too, that the book is available for purchase at a reduced rate just outside, and I'm sure that Professor Foley will be glad to sign it for you. Um, Elizabeth uh, Foley is the Institute for Justice Chair in Constitutional Litigation at the Florida International University School of Law in Miami. Uh, she also serves as the Executive Director of the Florida Chapter of the Institute for Justice where she litigates claims principally involving economic liberty, free speech, property rights, and school choice. Uh, she's the author of uh, now three books, uh, 
in liberty for all, reclaiming individual privacy in a new era of public morality, which the Yale University Press published in 2006. And then just last year, the Harvard University Prof uh, Press published her uh, The Law of Life and Death, uh, which was a book on, uh, on bioethics and medical ethics. Uh, she has published widely in numerous law journals, and she is, uh, her work has appeared, and she's been quoted uh, copiously by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, NPR, National Law Journal, CNN, and elsewhere. Um, she presently serves on the editorial board of the Cato Supreme Court Review, I'm proud to say, and she previously served as a member of the Committee on Embryonic Stem Cell uh, Guidelines of the Institute of Medicine, National Academy of Sciences, and as a Fulbright Scholar at the College of Law of the National University of Ireland in Galway. Um, <clears throat> she has taught at Michigan State University College of Law and was an adjunct professor at the MSU College of Human Medicine. Uh, she clerked for the Honorable uh, Caroline Deneen King of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And she, uh, in law school, served as a, uh, as a um, uh, articles editor for the Tennessee Law Review. She's a graduate in history of uh, Emory University, did her JD at the University of Tennessee College of Law, and an LLM at Harvard Law School. Please welcome Elizabeth Price Pauling. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I have to certainly thank everyone. Most importantly, thanks to Cato for, for putting this event together and uh, Roger for making it happen. Actually, this is my second book forum at Cato. I, I had my very first book come out in late 2006 uh, and I had a book forum down in the old auditorium, so it's nice to see uh, the new one. Um, thanks very much to Michael and to Doug for agreeing to come out and hopefully provide some really provocative comments uh, on my book. I think it's hard to to talk about the Tea Party without being provocative, so I hope they don't let me down. Um, and thanks to everybody in the audience for coming out today, um, because I really want to talk about the Tea Party, what it really is. Let's really talk about the Tea Party. Let's not chase rabbits. Let's not talk about the, the mainstream media mischaracterization. Let's not chase the caricature of the Tea Party. I want to talk about the substance of the Tea Party, uh, and that's what my book is about. I think it's the only book that really focuses on the substance of the Tea Party. But before I get into the substance of the book, I do want to just spend a couple minutes uh, talking about myself and my own sort of uh, ideological metamorphosis, uh, because that helps explain you know, why I wrote this book and why I wrote it the way I did. Um, Roger gave you a very laborious introduction of, of who I am. Uh, so you know I'm a constitutional law professor. You know I have uh, a relationship with the Institute for Justice. Um, but uh, I wanted to talk about how I got there for a second. Um, I consider myself to be a recovering liberal. Um, and, you know, it's not like a 12-step process, but it's darn close. Uh, because uh, like most people who are well-educated, you know, I graduated from a top-tier university. I had a degree in history. I thought I knew a lot of stuff. Uh, and I thought I especially knew a lot of stuff about government. Uh, I was sort of a political wonk. You know, I worked for Ted Kennedy in his 1980 campaign for president. I know there's a gasp in the room, probably. Um, uh, you know, I liked him so much. You know, I met him once and made him sign a photograph, you know, the, of him, and I put it on my wall. 
Uh, and when I graduated from college, the first thing I wanted to do was move to Washington, D.C. and work on the Hill. Uh, so that's what I did. I came to Washington, D.C. at the tender age of 21, and I proceeded somehow miraculously to get a job advising a congressman at the age of 21. I mean, first of all, you know something's messed up when that can happen. Um, and I worked for a congressman from Texas. His name was Mike Andrews. He represented the 25th District of Texas, which encompasses Houston and the uh, Texas Medical Center. And I became his health policy advisor. I'll never forget the first day when uh, his administrative aide came in, uh, chief of staff essentially, and uh, said, do you know anything about health care? And I said, no. And he said, well, read this. And he dumped, you know, a stack of files as thick on my desk. He said, read them. Uh, and I did. And, uh, and I began advising congressmen about health care policy. And he was on the Ways and Means Committee, too, which has a big jurisdiction over health care. Um, so I learned very fast. And after a little while, I decided I wanted to make a little bit more money. And I went out and lobbied for a big health maintenance organization, which was quite liberal at the time because the Democrats were their friends. And then I decided that was really boring. I wanted to go back to the Hill. So I went and worked for a guy named Ron Wyden, uh, who is a Democrat from Oregon. And uh, I advised him about healthcare policy for a couple years. To, and then I decided I want to go to law school. Because everybody I knew and worked with was a lawyer. And I was writing bills all day. I was spending all my days in legislative counsel's office because Ron Wyden was a very active legislator in the healthcare realm. Uh, and I didn't think I knew what I was doing very well. Uh, and certainly during my tenure on the Hill, nobody ever shared with me the news flash that Congress has limited and enumerated powers only, and that it doesn't have the power to do any darn thing it wants to do. I thought it did, and I think that's typical. I think Americans are woefully, inadequately educated about their own Constitution, and I didn't even know about my own ignorance until I went to law school. And so I went to law school, and I sat in a class with a liberal constitutional law professor, and we read a casebook. For those of you who are lawyers, you know exactly what casebooks are, the big, thick books that just Supreme Court case, Supreme Court case, Supreme Court case. You never read original materials in law school, God forbid. You don't have time to read original materials in law school. But because I was getting little snippets of constitutional text, it was an appendix in the back of my book, by the way. The Constitution was an appendix. It still today is an appendix in the back of the book. You get little snippets of constitutional language by reading the cases, and you think to yourself, wait a second, you know, what the Supreme Court's deciding doesn't seem to match up to that text. There's something wrong here. So I wanted to know, what, what is that? What am I missing? What, what are they not telling me? Uh, so being sort of the geek that I was, I decided to do a lot of extra reading that wasn't assigned. Uh, so I went out and I read the Federalist Papers for the first time in my life. I'd read little pieces of them in undergraduate, but never from cover to cover. I read the whole thing. I was fascinated by it. And then I discovered there was a thing called the Anti-Federalist Papers that you really can't understand the Federalist Papers until you read the Anti-Federalist Papers. So I read those. There's multiple volumes on that, turns out. And then I started reading the you know, notes of the ratifying conventions and the notes from that fateful summer in 1787 in, in Philadelphia. And all of these things that I had not been made aware of through my educational process. And I have to say, it changed me. It was eye-opening. Once you know that, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. It, it, it changes your way of looking at the Constitution and what's going on in modern issues. So, so there's a crisis of ignorance 
uh, and I wish I could teach the world. Now that I'm a law professor, I'm convinced the reason why I became a law professor is because I want to teach the world about what they're missing. Smart people are missing this. All right, so I give a lot of talks as a, as a law professor, and sometime in the fall of 2009, I went home and I told my husband, another one of those people came up to me with a pocket constitution. I had never seen that before in my life. In fact, nobody I know cares about pocket constitutions or has one except for law students because I make my law students have them. And here were these ordinary people. I was like talking to Rotarians, Chamber of Commerce types, Gray Panthers groups, the type of talks that you give when you're a constitutional law professor. And people were coming up to me with these, you know, pocket constitutions. And they would sort of very sheepishly pull them out of their pockets, and they would be highlighted and underlined. And I was just blown away by this. You know, the geek inside me came out and said, whoa, who are these people? I wanted to know more. I couldn't figure out why all of a sudden that was happening. It took me a little while, a few months, to say, you know what? I think these are Tea Partiers. Because I had the same impression of the Tea Party that you probably had, because the mainstream media was only portraying them in a certain way. They were portraying them as you know, xenophobic, racist, angry white guys. And they were angry not because of any policies of the president. They were angry because the president was black. right? And I bought into that. I actually believed that portrait because I didn't see any other portrait of them. But meeting the Tea Partiers and figuring out who they were changed my mind. And I tell you, it's too common that people who continue to adhere to this caricature have never been to a Tea Party event, or they've watched some rally from afar and looked at the thousands of signs that people are toting, and they pick out the ones that they want to pick out that may say something crazy or have a crazy picture on it. They say, aha, that confirms my stereotype. That's who the Tea Party really is. It's not who they are. As, as part of the research for writing this book, I have attended Tea Party groups, large and small, all across this country, and I can tell you it's not who they are. If you go to most of these groups, the first thing they do is pledge allegiance to the flag. The next thing they do is they have guest speakers. They have people like me. They have law practicing lawyers. They have people running for office who want to sort of uh, lobby for their vote. And then they have book reading sessions where they sit down and they're trying to satiate their hunger for all things constitutional. They want to know about the Constitution. They're hungry to learn about the Constitution. And from my perspective, that can't be anything but good for this country. We need more hunger about our Constitution. So I want to talk about how they developed as a group and what they stand for. They know there's something constitutionally fishy going on. We all know there's something constitutionally fishy going on. Randy Barnett sort of uh, sounded the alarm a few years ago with his lost constitution book. There is a lost constitution. If you're familiar with the founding materials, you know it. There is a lost constitution. There is something about the policies, at least since the New Deal, that have taken us very far afield from our founders' original vision uh, of our social charter. We are engaging in a massive and substantive departure from those founding principles. And the Tea Partiers, they're not lawyers for the most part. They instinctively know this. 
And the older ones are better because they've gotten a little bit better education from the public education system because they were part of it longer time ago, and somebody might have actually uttered to them the words limited and enumerated powers. So they kind of remember it, and they know that something's gone awry, even though they can't articulate it the way I can articulate it. Uh, And that is what is binding them together, this anxiety about these substantive changes. These substantive changes have been happening for a while. It's not just President Obama's policies. Certainly the alarm bell started sounding at the end of George Bush's uh, term with the massive bailouts. But since President Obama has taken office, it's like the alarm bell has gotten louder and louder and louder with each policy he tries to implement. So what does the Tea Party stand for then? Well, they're clearly a movement of principles and not politics. It's principles. It's these principles I talk about in the book. If you go to any website, you talk to any Tea Partiers, it's these three principles that will come up time and time again. Limited government, unapologetic defense of U.S. sovereignty, and a belief that the Constitution should be interpreted according to its original meaning, i.e. constitutional originalism. They are absolutely ruthless in their desire to support political candidates who espouse these three principles. And if the candidates don't espouse these principles, they're out the door. They don't get Tea Party support. So it's not about whether the candidate has an R or a D after their name. It's not about political parties. It is about these principles, which are deep-seated and important constitutional principles. You need look no further than what just happened in Indiana with uh, Richard Murdoch's victory over a longtime Republican senator, uh, Richard Lugar, in the Republican primary. Murdoch beat him by 20 points. And he beat him because he had strong Tea Party support. You saw the same thing with Mike Lee's uh, victory over Bob Bennett. He upset the Republican senator, longtime Republican senator from Utah in the Republican primary and is now the senator, of course, from that state. You saw the same thing with Rand Paul uh, winning in the Republican primary over Republican establishment uh, uh, favorite Trey Grayson. And I predicted the same thing is about to happen to Orrin Hatch. Uh, in the June primary that he's facing against Dan Lillianquist. Uh, the Tea Party is supporting Lillianquist, and, uh, and mark my words, Orrin Hatch is going to uh, go down. So the Tea Partiers know these principles. They may not be able to articulate it in the same way that I can, but they know it. They know that the federal government is a government of, quote-unquote, few and defined powers, They also know that the state governments are governments of quote-unquote numerous and indefinite powers. Who am I quoting? I'm quoting James Madison from Federalist Number 45. They haven't read Federalist Number 45. Many of them haven't. Some of them have. Um, But they're just like the rest of us. But they know that we have a Federalist structure. And they know that we have a Federalist structure not to protect states' rights. Federalism is not about states' rights. That's a complete and utter misnomer. Federalism is about individual liberty, right? The founders knew that we needed to divide up sovereignty in various ways to keep government from getting out of control and tyrannical. We needed to divide it horizontally against, uh, amongst the three branches of government. We needed to divide it vertically between the state governments and the federal governments. By doing all of this heavy division of sovereignty, of government power, we're protecting ourselves, We're protecting individual liberty. The Supreme Court finally fessed up to this this past summer in a case called Bond versus United States, where a unanimous court, and it was penned by Justice Kennedy, which I think may be telling for Obamacare, 
said that this is the purpose of federalism it is not to protect states rights it's to protect individual liberty and so the idea here is let's make sure we don't have a monolithic central government that has the power to do anything it wants to do, like I thought it did when I worked on the Hill. We don't have that kind of federal government. We can't have that fe- kind of federal government because if we do, and it has the power to do anything it wants to do in the name of, quote, unquote, protecting us, then we have the kind of Leviathan that Thomas Hobbes wrote about that the founders were familiar with that they spilled their blood to resist. Right? Maybe you don't care. Maybe you don't care about the founders' vision. I'll talk about that in just, just a second. But the Tea Partiers care. The second principle, uh, U.S. sovereignty, unapologetic U.S. sovereignty. The Tea Partiers know that the United States is a distinct nation, and it has a plenary right to defend its borders and its own rule of law, including its own constitutional system. So when you look at their uh, positions on things like the Arizona immigration law, on things like cap and trade, uh, when you look at their opposition to all things that come out of the UN, it seems like uh, treaties like the uh, Law of the Sea Treaty or the International Criminal Court, all of that, their opposition to all of these things or their, their positions on all of these things are, are designed to express their belief that U.S. sovereignty is in peril, that we are in an era where if you are left of center politically, you embrace this thing called globalism or internationalism, and it's creeping on us on a daily basis. And that kind of globalism or internationalism is frankly rather dangerous. It's dangerous because it creates a democratic deficit. The European Union is already experiencing this. I just uh, spent an entire semester at an Irish law school uh, where everyone is constantly wringing their hands saying, oh, what happened to our parliament? What happened to the parliament was that you became a member of the European Union, and guess what? You lost your sovereignty. And when you lose your sovereignty, you don't get it back short of a rebellion. It's extremely difficult to do. Uh, So the Tea Partiers are looking at all these treaties. They're worried that treaties are creeping into domestic policy, or there's a huge push to try to get treaties to push into domestic policy. If you read the founders' vision of what the treaty power was, the founders, you look at the Federalist Number 78, which was penned by Hamilton, and he talks about how the treaty power is designed to give uh, the U.S. Senate, which has the ratification authority, uh, together with the president, the ability to make contracts with other countries, sovereign-to-sovereign contracts, external matters, sovereign matters, but not sovereign-to-citizen relationships. Sovereign-to-citizen relationships, Hamilton assured the American people in Federalist 78, was for the U.S. Congress only. That was legislation, and it belonged exclusively to Congress. But you can see that treaties, as they are now being written, are being written with the idea not of sovereign-to-sovereign external relationships, but affecting domestic law and domestic policy, uh, and that is of deep concern, or it should be. You also, by the way, see this play out in the increasing uh, willingness of progressives to use international and foreign law in U.S. constitutional interpretation. We saw it recently in uh, a death penalty case involving uh, a death penalty for 17-year-olds, the Roper case, uh, and also in the Lawrence v. Texas case, the uh, the sodomy case that was decided a few years ago. The, The progressives on the court now think it's okay. In fact, they think it's cool to refer to foreign and international law materials. I think the United States should norm itself, constitutionally speaking. Uh, Again, 
uh, I would suggest to you that that is a dangerous encroachment on our own sovereignty. And what starts out as just sort of being aware of the rest of the world today, slowly over time, uh, gains some precedential value, it gains some steam, if you will, and before you know it, it becomes entrenched in our own law. So I think it's time that we became aware of it, and the Tea Partiers seem to be, thankfully. And finally, originalism. The Tea Partiers here have common sense. I won't spend a lot of time on it. The whole point of a written constitution is it's a fixed structure of government. And I think George Will put it best. He said it is a written constitution is an anti-evolutionary device. It's, to defined, it's designed to fix the structure of our government and define the limits of government power. If the written text is infinitely capacious, if nine unelected Supreme Court justices and unelected uh, federal judges below him can simply reinterpret our constitution because they don't think the constitution is progressive enough, it's not modern enough, it's not keeping up with the times, then we don't really have a written text, do we? What we have instead is an illusion. It's something we can look at and pretend to revere. We can put it on the wall, but it really has no fixed meaning. So a living constitution is a constitution that rests on a foundation of sand. It's rhetorically nice, right? They won the rhetorical debate. Who wants a dead constitution, right? How many people want a dead constitution? Nobody wants a dead constitution, so they teach little kids in school that you have to have a living constitution. Well, you know what? The constitution is living, and the founders understood that it's living, but in this way. The Constitution is living because they gave us a mechanism for change. They gave us Article 5, the amendment article. It takes two-thirds of both houses of Congress, three-quarters of states to ratify, but we've done it 27 times. We know how to do that. We, the people, know how to do that. You don't change our written social charter by changing your mind about it, by having unelected judges do it for you. I know it's easier, right? Progressives will say, well, it's too hard to have a constitutional amendment. It's too hard, you know, and the, Congress, the Constitution hasn't kept up with the times. The people can just sit on their couch and eat their chicken nuggets, and the court can fix all the problems for them. But you know what? That's not very respectful of we the people, is it? And the progressives are the ones who are always talking about democracy, democracy, democracy. Think about it. Their, their principal way of interpreting our social charter, our Constitution, is living constitutionalism. That is the most disrespectful statement of what they think about the people that I've ever come across. They don't think we can do it, or if they think we're going to do it, we're going to do it wrong somehow. So Tea Partiers, give them credit for being honest about it. They understand that Article 5 is the way you legitimately change the Constitution. That's why they've been so supportive of various proposed constitutional amendments. Look at the repeal amendment that's been proposed that would give states a voice in uh, ex expressing displeasure about uh, uh, acts in enacted by Congress. Look at uh, Randy Barnett's federalism amendment, which is their way of trying to restore the, uh, the vertical uh, balance of powers in federalism. They, some of them want to repeal the 17th Amendment, direct election of U.S. senators. Some of them want to repeal the income tax, the 16th Amendment. Many of them want a balanced budget amendment. But all of these constitutional amendments that they're proposing and occasionally espousing are good things. This is not hypocritical for them to be wanting constitutional amendments. In fact, anybody who says it's hypocritical fundamentally misunderstands what originalism is. Originalism is not reverence for the original constitution. I'll say it again. Originalism is not reverence for the original constitution. This is not about putting the original Constitution on a pedestal and saying, oh, that was the best thing we ever had. 
Originalism is a, a method of constitutional interpretation that says that the written text, whatever the written text happens to be, that the written text should be interpreted by judges according to its original meaning. That is, the meaning given to those words by those people who wrote it, and more importantly, by the, we the people who ratified it. What did we think it meant when we ratified it? That's what originalism is. So if you're an originalist, you love the 14th Amendment, which has the Equal Protection and the Due Process Clause in it, and you love the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, as much as you love the rest of the Constitution. They're not trying to turn back the clock to a time when women were barefoot and pregnant. They're not trying to, you know, make black people go back to slavery. That's not what originalism is about. In fact, anybody who says that is just being completely disingenuous. So it's perfectly legitimate to be an originalist and support constitutional amendments. That's what the Tea Party is doing. Give them some credit for being intellectually honest. Uh, and I'll end it by just prognosticating because I know I've gone over. Come November, the Tea Party is uh, itching to go to the polls. Uh, everybody, you know, pronounced them dead. Uh, those pronouncements were incredibly premature. Everyone I've talked to uh, cannot wait. They're not marching in the streets anymore. They've been there. They've done that. What they want to do now is just show up at the polls, and most of them are going to pull the lever against President Obama, to be honest with you. And it's not because he's black. It's because they don't like his policies. Uh, much like many people did in uh, the 2008 election, they pulled the lever. They went to the polls to vote against George Bush. And a lot of the Tea Parties are going to do exactly the same thing. So I think that you're going to find that the Tea Party is not only a viable force, but it's going to be the determining force in this presidential election. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Elizabeth, for that spirited um, discussion of both law and politics. Um, in her opening remarks relating to her bio, Elizabeth mentioned the state of her constitutional understanding when she first went to work for uh, Ted Kennedy and uh, Ron Wyden. We're now going to hear from someone who has that understanding. Actually, uh, Doug is an old friend of mine. We have debated over the years many times. We could probably give each other's talk, uh, but he comes from a very different perspective than the one you have just heard, and that's uh, why we have asked him to be here, uh, and we're very grateful uh, to him for being here to give some comments from the progressive side, as uh, we say when we don't use the word liberal anymore. Um, Doug is the founder and president of the Constitutional Accountability Center, uh, which is, uh, as uh, he describes it, a think tank, law firm, and action center dedicated to fulfilling the progressive promise of our Constitution's text and history. He previously founded and directed the Community Rights Council, uh, which was the predecessor of the Constitutional Accountability Center. Uh, in that capacity, he uh, represented clients in state and federal appellate courts around the country. Uh, he's co-authored more than a dozen briefs filed before the U.S. Supreme Court, largely in the area of property rights and environmentalism, and that's where he and I have so often debated. Um, he's the co-author of three books, uh, lead author of numerous reports and studies, uh, he launched and helped direct uh, with the Earth Justice the Judging the Environment Project, a comprehensive effort to highlight the environmental stakes in the future uh, of the U.S. Supreme Court and appointments to the federal bench. 
Uh, he has appeared on numerous television and radio programs from Nightline, 2020, Fox News, Sunday, uh, World News Tonight, and so forth, uh, on NPR, CBS News, and Air America. His academic writings have appeared in scholarly journals, including the Virginia Law Review. Uh, his commentary is run in the New Republic, uh, the American Prospect, Slate, and dozens of major papers, including the Washington Post, USA Today, and the Los Angeles Times. He blogs at Huffington Post. Uh, he received his undergraduate degree and his law degree from the University of Virginia. Please welcome Doug Kendall. Thanks, Roger, and thanks for uh, having me here today. Um, just a, a little more, Roger, kind of give you a, a thumbnail sketch of Constitutional Accountability Center, but I just want to fill in a little bit of detail. As, as Roger's description described it, we're, we're a think tank law firm and action center dedicated to the progressive promise of the Constitution's text and history. As that name indicates, we're not, uh, in some ways, a standard progressive legal organization. We really are focused on... Um, getting progressives and getting all Americans to care more about the Constitution's text and history. I will wear the label originalist. I, I prefer the label textualist because I think that that is really the fundamental thing that all lawyers across the political spectrum should care about most is the text of the written Constitution and our enacted laws. Uh, and I'll talk about that a little more as we get on. But it's not... I just want to clarify that I come to this from a somewhat different perspective than some others progress, other progressives will. I, I support some of the things that uh, um, Professor Foley has written in her book. And let me just, um, you know, my role here is to play the progressive foil, which is something that I will very gladly do and forcefully do as we get through it. But let me start with saying a few things um, that I <clears throat> like and agree with about the book. The first thing I like is you'll see if you uh, page through it is it's short. It's uh, <laughs> it's like 200 pages. It's uh, somebody's reviewing it. You can get through it in three hours and have a really good sense of what she's saying and the argument that she's making. And and anyone who who comes to a book and, and is looking to try to distill to the essence of it will appreciate that. But it's more than short. It's it's concise. Um, it's entertaining. It reads quickly and well. It's a, it's a good book from the kind of classic um, uh, standards of, of how you judge a book, not from an ideological perspective. Uh, but more than that, I think it's, it's an admirable attempt to build a intellectual and a coherent intellectual foundation under a movement that um, even the author describes as a little inchoate, a little um, scattered, a little hard to pin down in certain respects. And I think the three principles that are identified in the book are as good as any in terms of uh, describing the what unites the Tea Party. Um, what I agree with about the book, um, you know, again, there's a fair amount. Um, I agree with the generally with the analysis of what spurred the Tea Party. I think it was a combination of a very severe economic downturn coupled with an effort, uh, or coupled with the effort by both the Bush administration and the Obama administration to bail out the banks and other powerful economic actors, the too-big-to-fail bailouts. I think that really did spark an anger kind of across the political spectrum, but that really coalesced within the Tea Party movie, uh, movement. I think that is the genesis of the Tea Party movement. I think it is 
uh, different than it's, it's not about. I don't think it's about racism or about pure and simple opposition to President Obama. I like the author respect parts of the Tea Party movement a lot. As a, as a head of an organization that is, um, that has a mission of getting Americans to care more about the Constitution's text and history, I admire and, in fact, am a little jealous of the energy that the Tea Party movement brings to the conversation about the discussion. You see it in their rallies. You see it before the Supreme Court in the um, Affordable Care Act arguments. Um, the Tea Party cares about uh, the Constitution and is talking about it and studying it. I think that's a good thing. I will describe in a few minutes why I think they are profoundly wrong about what the Constitution says and means. But the fact that they're studying it, the fact that they care about it, is a good thing. Um, finally, uh, you know, and relatedly, um, as I alluded to before, I agree with the thrust of the third principle of this point, the, the idea that judges and all of us should look really carefully at the text and history of the Constitution to decide what the Constitution means. I think the text is the binding source um, of, of guidance for judges, and we have to look carefully about what the, what the founders said and the history of how those words came in to be in part of our Constitution. Um, I'd also, in, in that context, I just wanted to plug a little bit uh, a report that Constitutional Accountability Center just issued called Laying Claim to the Constitution, The Promise of New Textualism. It was written for Constitutional Accountability Center by uh, UVA law professor Jim Ryan, and it explains our method, new textualism, our, vision, our version of what we call principled originalism. And it also talks, and I think most importantly for this audience, talks a lot about how in academic circles, and this is, we had an event featuring Randy Barnett and Jack Balkin talking about constitutional interpretation, and really about how dramatically the fight about constitutional interpretation has narrowed, with academics across the political spectrum agreeing to um, the, the, the core principles of what we call new textualism. I think it's a really important debate, it, or a really important movement and development in constitutional law, and I think everyone in this audience would benefit from at least taking a look at laying claim. Um, okay, now let me kind of hit the major points of disagreement. Um, I just, and I'll go in, in the principles that uh, are in the book, but not in quite the order. So I'll start with originalism, which, as I said, I, I share a lot of, I think, I think the book gives a pretty fair description of what I'd call original meaning originalism, and I agree with much of what's in there. The one thing that really gave me pause is that there's a couple points in there where it talks about um, interpreting the Constitution based on, quote, understanding the prevailing political philosophy at the time of ratification. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means, and it doesn't explain itself very well. But I, what I take it to mean is that we should interpret the Constitution based on our determinations of whether the founders were Lockean liberals or Hobbesian uh, disciples or disciples of Blackstone or Montesquieu or some other political philosopher. And what I'd say about that is, um, to the extent we get beyond the enacted text, 
the dictionary definitions, the Federalist Papers, Anti-Federalist Papers, the, the kind of history about the particular phrases, um, and the broader history of the events that brought people to Philadelphia and to the amending processes. To the extent we start looking at the books that were on the nightstands of particular founders, we're getting awful close to a version of, uh, you know, uh, of living constitutionalism, which means you can make up or you can interpret the law words however you want to based on what you think are the political inclinations or philosophies of the founders. Those are amorphous, subjective, and I think really not legitimately part of the original meaning originalism. Um, second, limited government. Um, I think probably the most stark difference in opinion between uh, uh, myself and, and Professor Foley is in terms of what the founders um, expected in terms of the size and strength of the United States government. And I think perhaps the, most, the best way to capture this is by reviewing a particular historical incident that that is discussed in the book on page 28. And, and the discussion of this is entirely accurate. It's a question of whether the Constitution gives the federal government the power to um, have a national bank. Um, as described in the book, um, this was a raging debate in the founding era. Um, there was a, the, the Washington administration, or the Congress and Washington administration proposed a national bank. It was hotly disputed by you know, prominent founders, including Thomas Jefferson. Pre President Washington asked his two closest advisors, Secretary of the Treasury uh, Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, to each provide memos as on each side of this. Um, Alexander Hamilton's memo, which is available online, which I ask, suggest every one of you read, uh, is the most the strongest statement for a incredibly powerful national government you will ever read. It is as sweeping a discussion of the need for a strong United States of America as you will ever see. It makes um, proponents of a strong federal government now, people like me, blush in terms of how broadly it describes the need and the powers of the federal government granted under the Constitution. Thomas Jefferson laid out a very different vision of the powers of the federal government and enumerated powers, how they should be interpreted. He, he opined to President Washington that the federal government didn't have the power to establish a national bank. It wasn't necessary and proper. Uh, it wasn't part of the authority within any of the particular enumerated powers. Um, it's an honest and real debate that is discussed in the book. President Washington sided with Secretary Hamilton. The United States Supreme Court then, in a case called McCulloch versus Maryland in 1803, sided with a Hamilton and Washington position in a unanimous ruling written by Chief Justice John Marshall. Now, I'm not saying that Thomas Jefferson's position in that wasn't in good faith, wasn't a viable interpretation, but as Justice Scalia has said in describing Bush v. Gore, Get over it. We decided that in 1803. The Supreme Court unanimously ruled about it. The Washington administration decided it. At some point, discussions about the scope of powers, what our Constitution means, has to be settled. If we're going back 
and as part of a debate over the Federal Reserve, are deciding that Jefferson was right in his advice to President Washington, and the Supreme Court and the Washington administration was wrong, I think, this, I think our country is in real trouble. Um, and it's the same thing. There's also a discussion in the healthcare case about the expansion of Medicaid and the ex exercise of the spending clause. And it's another matter where um, there's a real dispute between Hamilton and Madison about whether the spending clause can be used to, um, to promote the general welfare, which is what the text of Article I, Section 8, Clause 1 says, or whether it's somehow limited by the enumerated powers to the illuminated powers. Um, again, a totally fair dispute between Madison and Hamilton, two incredibly pre preeminent founders, the Supreme Court in the middle of the Lochner era, the conservatives on the Supreme Court in the middle of the Lochner era, sided with Hamilton, said he was right, said Justice Story, who espoused a Hamiltonian position, was right. And again, without any dispute, without any disagreement on the court, said that Congress under spending clause has a power to tax and spend for the general welfare. Again, I'm not saying that Madison's position is unviable but it is a matter of settled constitutional law. And that's kind of what, particularly in the Medicaid aspect of the case, and what I think the limited government philosophy of the Tea Party, at least taken to an um, uh, you know, extreme version, where you start really thinking about, or you're really going back to whether the Constitution gives federal government to establish a federal reserve, or, or have these conditional state-federal partnerships like Medicaid, um, I, I think you're getting into points where this has been settled for so long um, that we really have to let it lie. And it's particularly wrong and particularly problematic for this book and for the Tea Party to claim they're restoring the founders' vision. No, they're not. They're restoring the vision of a few founders, few founders who lost. They're restoring the vision of the anti-federalists, of the anti-Washingtons. And so don't claim the founders. Claim some of the founders. Say that there was an argument made, but accurately describe what the history of our Constitution is. And that's, I think, the most profound flaw with the limited government section of the book. How much time do I have, Walter? Um, well, we should wrap it up. Oh, am I over? No. Okay, just, just let me, I think the, um, the biggest flaws actually um, are with the, the U.S. sovereignty points, and I just will tick them off uh, and then, then, then let Michael go. Um, the biggest problem with the sovereignty section is I think it's, it really does fall into political and policy arguments rather than constitutional arguments. I don't think the points... Uh, about particularly immigration follow the text of the Constitution, the history of what we've al allocated to the federal government. And most importantly, the author makes a choice, Professor Foley makes a choice to not discuss all of the places where the Obama administration has been really aggressive inserting national sovereignty and aggressive inserting the ability of the United States government to um, act in a sovereign capacity and taking out bin Laden and shooting the Somali pirates and going after al-Awlaki with the drones. And because of that, I don't think there's a real serious debate about this issue. And I don't think the discussion is particularly coherent. So 
I agree with much of what is said about originalism. I, we have a pretty profound disagreement about what the Constitution says in terms of the powers of the federal government. And I think U.S. sovereignty, the, that chapter, is, needs a lot of work before it's a coherent assertion of a actual principle. And with that, I'll, I'll pass it on. Well, thank you, Doug. Um, when I um, invited uh, Michael Barone to uh, comment on the book, I said, uh, could I introduce him as uh, perhaps the nation's foremost political demographer? He said I could, but he would blush, so I won't do that, um, even though he is. Um, <laughs> in any event, he is officially a resident uh, fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, where he specializes in uh, politics, campaigns and elections, American political system, American government. Um, he is a political analyst and journalist who studies politics, uh, campaigns and elections. He's the principal co-author of the annual uh, Almanac of American Politics, uh, and he's written many books on American politics and history. Um, he's also a senior political analyst at the Washington Examiner. He uh, was, uh, years ago, vice president for Peter D. Hart um, Research Associates and then an editorial uh, board member of the Washington Post, uh, staff, uh, senior staff editor of the Reader's Digest, senior writer at U.S. News & World Report, contributor to Fox News uh, Channel, which he is, uh, has been from 2001 to the present, and uh, senior uh, political analyst at the Washington Examiner, where many of you may read his, uh, his columns. Uh, Michael is a graduate of uh, uh, Yale, uh, excuse me, of Harvard uh, College and of the Yale Law School. Please welcome Michael Barone. Well, thank you very much, Roger, and uh, got all that in there. The, uh, Peter D. Hart, by the way, is a Democratic polling firm, so uh, we were the pollsters for Edward Kennedy's campaign. So I guess Ted Kennedy is the winner on this panel of the 1980 uh, presidential The only election. one who hasn't worked for Ted Kennedy? That's uh, <laughs> Well, the, uh, yeah, that actually was sort of when I left the po The polling business is a great business, and Peter Hart is a terrific uh, person, but I left the polling business because I... Uh, didn't really. Uh, I was starting not to believe the Democratic candidates anymore, and you can't really do a good job as a political consultant if you don't want your client to win. Um, <laughs> so, uh, regretfully, had to leave uh, the world of uh, political consultancy, which I think is a profession with, uh, uh, and, and, and go into a profession with a much lower level of intellectual integrity uh, and honesty, uh, which is to say, journalism. Uh, <coughs> the, um, I guess I start off by saying um, it, it wasn't just Rick Santelli that started the Tea Party uh, movement. He used the term Tea Party. He talked about having one in July and dumping derivatives into the Chicago River or Lake Michigan um, on his rant on February 19, 2009. Um, and of course, using that term Tea Party suggested to many people uh, that uh, you know, the naming of a Tea Party movement and so forth, uh, the invoking of the founders. Uh, but I don't think that, that happened on a blank slate. Uh, one of the things that's fascinated me as a, 
occasional writer of books about history is that uh, books about the founding fathers have been bestsellers now for about the past 10 or 15 years. Uh, it's a fascinating development, it, and they have been uh, really, they've been much better sellers than they were on the 200th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, the Bicentennial Celebration, uh, the 200th anniversary of the Constitution. We got several interesting books about the uh, convention in Philadelphia, but uh, they weren't really bestsellers. And yet, by uh, the past decade, we have uh, you know a summer where the number one beach book that you see on the fashionable beaches is a biography of John Adams. Uh, now, you know, I would suggest to you that uh, having been involved in the book business over a number of years, if you'd taken uh, the idea of a biography of John Adams to a book editor in the 1970s and said this is going to sell a million copies. They would have uh, thought you were crazy and you wouldn't get a book contract. Uh, but in fact, there is uh, in this in this past 15 years um, a hunger for, a desire to learn more about uh, the founders, about the challenges they faced, about the things they accomplished, about the ideas that they had, and indeed is. Doug points out they didn't have all have exactly the same ideas uh, by any means. Um, but that there's a real hunger for it. It's not limited to political conservatives, though it clearly uh, includes political conservatives. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. And I would compare it with um, going back to when I first started reading and consuming books. Uh, the bestsellers of some of the late 1950s, early 60s, uh, New Deal histories. I mean, Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s, uh, the three volumes that he managed to write about uh, Franklin Roosevelt's administration, they were bestsellers, uh, part because Schlesinger is a beautiful writer, uh, very, very readable, but there was a real hunger for that New Deal history that basically presented the New Deal as the logical culmination of American history, and uh, our history was a history of progress from no government or limited government to much bigger government, and we should go on to get even more big government uh, as time went on. Uh, that was the line of history that was uh, uh, suggested by the progressives who were writing 100 years ago. It was suggested by uh, Franklin Roosevelt himself, who in many respects sort of wrote his own history as uh, uh, really competent politicians sometimes do. Uh, and uh, it was the history that it was, uh, the idea was that, uh, uh, as the progressives said, uh, in the modern industrial world, when you have you know, these new kinds of organizations producing these technologically advanced products, the assembly line at Henry Ford's plant producing the Model T, you could no longer have a horse and buggy constitution. Uh, as President Woodrow Wilson, who went from academics into politics, therefore going into a profession that had higher level of intellectual honesty and integrity, um, the, uh, said that uh, you know, the Constitution was outmoded. Government had to be able to operate and run things and do stuff that the founders never contemplated it's, uh, them doing. Uh, we should just sweep that aside. Um, and uh, among other things, the, uh, th that coincided with the passage while President William Howard Taft was in an office of the 16th Amendment authorizing the income tax, which provided a lot of the wherewithal for government uh, to do more things. Uh, and uh, 
Those were the ideas of the progressives. Those were the ideas of the New Deal. Uh, and what I sense now is that Americans uh, are more interested uh, and more captivated by the founders. Uh, you don't, uh, Conrad Black came out with what I consider to be the best biography of uh, Franklin Roosevelt about a dozen years ago. It wasn't a bestseller. Um, it, people are hungry instead for the founders. And what I think is fascinating is that today, uh, the progressive arguments that were made 100 years ago, 70 years ago, uh, sound kind of tinny and out of date. Uh, that Model T is not actually in the assembly line there, is not the summum bonum and the culmination of, uh, of world history uh, that the progressives and the New Dealers seem to think that it was. They sound old-fashioned and out of date. We've had experience with centralized command and control. We find that it tends not to work very well. Uh, government uh, run by uh, credentialed experts uh, the problem is that experts don't turn out to be expert. Uh, and if they're not uh, limited by the marketplace, as uh, experts in private sector are, uh, they produce a lot of dysfunctional things. Uh, so the, the progressive line sounds out of date, uh, whereas the founding fathers' sentiments, uh, over 200 years old, uh, ring true, like a silver spoon on a crystal goblet. Uh, they still speak to us uh, meaningfully uh, and in ways which are relevant to uh, a, a world where we have uh, an increasingly uh, decentralizing uh, technologies, information technology. As the economist Arnold Kling wrote, the uh, uh, industrial economy tends to favor centralization. Information economy tends to favor decentralization. Uh, and the Founding Fathers uh, continued to be uh, more relevant, uh, I think, to people uh, than they were uh, even a generation ago. Um, the, uh, and I think in this uh, light, uh, I think that Elizabeth uh, Rice Foley's book does tell us a lot about the Tea Party. As, as she noted in her comments, the media has been demonizing the Tea Party from the very beginning. They're racist, they're bigots, they're, they're all white, which is uh, terrible. Of course, they aren't all white, but uh, they sort of elide over that anyhow uh, and so forth, just as the media has been trying to sanctify the Occupy group, which turns out to include an uncomfortably large percentage of violent felons. Um, the Tea Party uh, group, on the other hand, when they leave uh, the scene of a demonstration, the litter is all picked up and the place is cleaner than when they got there. Uh, so um, they are solid citizens. Uh, Elizabeth, in her book, cites one of uh, the most interesting examples that I've cited also about people caring about the Constitution voters, the Congressman Phil Hare, the representative from the 17th Congressional District of Illinois, a Democrat elected in a district that was uh, drawn by Democrats to elect a Democrat, uh, said, I don't care about, the, I don't worry about the Constitution, he told a town hall meeting. Um, that, um, the YouTube of that got 462,000 hits. Uh, and Congressman Phil Hare lost uh, in a Democratic district to a, the proprietor of a pizza parlor in East Moline. Um, that's uh, the, the uh, as, as, uh, as Elizabeth noted, the, uh, the 2000, or Roger noted at the beginning, the 2010 election 
uh, was in large part a victory for um, that group of people, which I say is symbolized by but not limited to the Tea Party movement. We saw the biggest change in popular vote percentage for party popular vote percentage in the uh, popular vote for House of Representatives, nine points, Democrats down nine points, Republicans up nine points, since, we, since the elections of 1946 and 1948. And in fact, those elections, uh, in those elections, the same kind of issues were at stake, size and scope of government. The Democrats, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, wanted to vastly expand the size and scope of government. Uh, the Republicans said no. Uh, with this, the Republican Congress selected in 1946 essentially put the kibosh on most of those plans, uh, reduced the power of labor unions. Democrats returned and won the election of 1948, but many Democrats did not support the big government programs, and the decisions made by that Republican Congress to a large extent remained enduring public policy for a generation, and in many cases till this day. Um, and basically, we did not go the route of Great Britain, which in one election elected a labor party, which nationalized industries, kept in place wartime rationing and price controls, and imposed the National Health Service. America went another route. And I think the 2010 election uh, uh, was an example of American voters basically saying, no, we don't want this vast expansion of the size and scope of government. Uh, and uh, we believe that it's, uh, that it's uh, uh, in many respects, that it is unconstitutional. We have interesting polling that consistently shows a majority of Americans say that Obamacare or the mandate to buy health insurance under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, if you want to call it that, um, is unconstitutional, 67% numbers of that magnitude. I'm not sure that uh, I can claim that all those people are, are basing this on an intense study of the Constitution, uh, but it is an interesting result uh, nonetheless. Um, it, in conclusion, I guess um, I would say that um, I think this is a valuable book uh, because it sets forth with admirable brevity, as Doug mentioned, uh, some of the arguments that uh, are finding favor here. And I think the, um, the liberal legal establishment, if you will, the kind of uh, thoughts that were prevailing when I was at Yale Law School back in the class of 1912 or whenever it was, uh, 1969 actually, um, was that the issue of federal power had been settled by Wickard v. Filburn. and there was nothing more to say about it. Uh, and I think that, that in many respects, uh, uh, liberals have been, caught, have been blindsided uh, by not uh, having a familiarity uh, with the Constitution. We have seen that uh, in a number of respects. The Second Amendment uh, cases, although some liberal scholars like Sanford Levinson pointed out that the, uh, uh, what did he call it, the annoying or the, the Embarrassing. The embarrassing Second Amendment. Uh, 11, that was back in 1988. He was one of the original <laughs> sponsors of that. It turns out the Second Amendment does mean more or less what it says. Um, we've seen this in the free exercise of religion case. The Obama administration, Justice Department, losing 9 nothing in the Supreme Court. On, you know, shall the government choose who ministers are or should the people choose uh, who their ministers are? Uh, the Supreme Court rejected unanimously uh, position of government control of uh, government playing a part, at least, in religious care. Uh, and the, uh, the issue of the Obamacare mandate. Um, 
the argument being made by Randy Barnett and others that it is not justified by Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was asked about the constitutionality of Obamacare when she was uh, speaker, and her response was, are you serious? Are you serious? Well, uh, what we know now is that there is a serious argument, and I think one of the, I think, permanent effects of the Tea Party movement is that the issue of constitutionality is be going to become, it has become, and will remain for some time a serious political issue. It will be raised, it will be argued about, it will be part of the political process. The era of the governing of the United States by Wickard v. Filburn uh, is over and done with, uh, and we are in a new uh, and different era. Um, let me just make one more point that I uh, liked in the book particularly, uh, because of course when you argue for an originalist position, uh, on the uh, con interpreting the Constitution, uh, the first thing you often heard from the time I was in law school when it was a relatively fresh case, but that means you would have decided Brown v. Board of Education the other way. Well, as Elizabeth points out, uh, there's a very good originalist argument for Brown v. Board, and, and, and Mike McConnell's recent uh, uh, scholarship has demonstrated that the 39th Congress in writing the 14th Amendment uh, was providing a very sound constitutional basis for uh, a Brown decision outlawing racial segregation in schools, and that it was the, uh, the living constitution was Plessy v. Ferguson uh, decision, uh, when the Supreme Court was basically bent on reversing the rule of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the Reconstruction Congress. Um, I would only add on original, uh, the, another decision that has always irritated me, um, the equal, uh, the, the decisions requiring equal population districts and districtings. I support them, but I think that they should have been based on the census clause. I mean, the, the founders did something very unusual in the Constitution. They mandated a census. There was no mand at, at regular intervals and linked it to representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. No other country had ever had a regularly scheduled census. This was an innovation. No other country had linked population with representation. It seems to me that what the founders were saying, or can reasonably be interpreted as saying, is that we want equal population uh, as a basis for representation and the kind of grotesque population disparities that came before the court in cases from the 1940s when they rejected them and the 1960s when they accepted them basically violates the founder's sense of what is a representative and Republican government. So with that uh, attempt to revive the census clause as a basis for decision-making, I'll sit down. So we did get political demography in after all. Well. All right, uh, Elizabeth is going to just make a few comments in response, and then we're going to have a little exchange if necessary and open it up. Okay, I'll try to be brief. I, I just wanted to address a, a couple of points that, um, that uh, David Kendall made. Um, first of all, this fight but, you know, with the Bank of the United States between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. I mean, he's right, Hamilton won. 
We all know Hamilton won. Hamilton was the most ardent Federalist of the founders. Um, and on the other side, aligned against him, were um, uh, certainly Thomas Jefferson, but also James Madison, right? Because James Madison started out with Hamilton, Madison, and Jay. They wrote the Federalist Papers together. And at some point, Mad Madison realized, you can see this in his letters, that, that Hamilton is out for power, and he's, about, he's out for um, a, a vision of a, a sort of a large centralized federal government that um, was not the bill of goods that they sold the American people. So uh, despite the fact that he had his own issues with Thomas Jefferson, Madison ended up aligning himself with Jefferson against Hamilton, who was his initial sort of brother in arms philosophically. Uh, and he did that because he believed that Hamilton uh, was doing things as a statesman after ratification of the Constitution that was not consonant, again, with the bill of goods that they sold the American people. So even though Hamilton won the, the debate about the Bank of the United States, it doesn't make it right, right? It doesn't make it right. I mean, it, it, I'm not going to get over it. I don't think anybody should get over it. Um, the, the idea that, that we should get over a bad interpretation of the Constitution and that it's just, it's entrenched and we've been relying on it for a long time, so it's too late to go back, uh, it's just a really bad way to run the railroad, so to speak. Um, uh, President Jackson vetoed uh, the bank reauthorization uh, in the 1830s, and we had no central bank until 1913. Look, I'm not here to really talk to you about the, the Bank of the United States, uh, because that was a, a debate about what necessary means. Is it really mean necessary necessary? Does it mean really necessary? Is it without which the power would be rendered nugatory? Or is it a uh, debate about what necessary really means convenient? Um, but on the larger issue, rather than just what necessary means, um, the scope and the breadth of federal power is, is clearly not consonant with Federalist 45. And Federalist 45 was the bill of goods that was sold to the American people. Um, and I don't think anyone would really honestly disagree with that. I think everyone knows that the, the American people who ratified the Constitution believed that the federal government was going to be a government of limited and enumerated powers only, that that, that enumeration in Article I, Section 8 of Congressional Powers did not include a police power. It did not give pa Congress the power to pass any law it wants for the general welfare. I gave a talk once to some very educated people who were um, uh, big founders of my university, and I asked them, how many of you believe the federal government has the power to pass any law it wants in the name of the general welfare. And about 80% of them raise their hands. It's just not true. It's not one of the powers. Um, and, and so, I mean, I, I think that that tells us something. So, so yeah, uh, Hamilton won, but wow, what a shame. And it doesn't mean that uh, those of us who understand the, the history of this country and, and what this uh, constitutional structure is supposed to be are supposed to just go home with our tail between our legs. Um, and, and by the way, uh, you know, I find it interesting, too, that all of the, um, the progressives, the political left, have suddenly become, living, uh, have suddenly become originalists. It started with Jack Balkan. Now everybody's running away from living constitutionalism because finally the jig is up and people are talking about it. They're not accepting the Wickard v. Filburn. They're actually saying, hey, wait a second. There's more here to it. There's more debate about this than you've ever taught us before. Um, there's actually a continuing, ongoing, real debate about the scope of federal power. And now all of a sudden everybody is, a, is an originalist. Uh, but I would suggest, I think Sarah Palin said it once, is it, you, know, you, uh, you put lipstick on a pig and it's still a pig. Uh, so I, I do think that uh, they're, they're still living constitutionalists. They just don't want to use that label anymore because uh, they know that we're beginning to understand what that means.
quick uh, comment, uh, Doug. Yeah, I, I guess it's just frustrating that people who purport to care about the Constitution's text and history don't really care about it. Uh, and that's, I mean, I think that's reflective in, in Professor Foley's comments. I, I, it's not Hamilton. It's Hamilton, Washington, and Chief Justice Marshall. It's, it, it is not, um, and it, the story doesn't end there. There's also, um, yeah, the debates in the convention, which talk about the need for the strong federal government. There's the events leading up to the convention, which are forged in the minds of the founders, including Madison, the need for a powerful federal government that can address national problems. And then there's the entire history thereafter, the Civil War, post-Civil War amendments, the passage of the 16th and the 17th amendments, um, the expansions of the federal government in eight in the powers of the federal government in eight separate amendments. Um, there, there's a whole historical argument here that is countered by one Federalist paper, 45. Look at that. That's all you need to look at. Don't look at anything else. Just look at it. Federalist 45. And you do that, everything's fine, because Madison once said one thing that we agree with, and that's all the history we need. That defines the United States Republic. Well, it doesn't. It's just a fairy tale. And that's what, you know, the lipstick on a pig. This book is lipstick on the pig of a Tea Party in terms of their constitutional vision and their story about it. It doesn't, it's a fairy tale, no matter what you call it. Well, you have now forced me to abandon my my neutrality as a moderator, which I am extraordinarily reluctant to do, as, Please, those, in, as those in this audience uh, will know from past experience. Um, it wasn't just Federalist 45. It was, more importantly, Federalist 41, where Madison discussed it in great, discussed in great detail the uh, meaning of the so-called general welfare clause, the spending power and we in Hamilton didn't really triumph in uh, you, you I think you misspoke when you spoke of, uh, of McCulloch v Maryland as 1803 is 1819 of course and uh, what he did was triumph on that narrow point for a brief period of time until as uh, Elizabeth said um, <clears throat> President Jackson, came on board, and then we went for another uh, roughly 100 years without a bank. The triumph came in a, a 1936 in the Butler decision when the court uh, came down on Hamilton's side in the great debate in dicta, and then in 1937, after the infamous court backing threat, it elevated the dicta in the Helvering v. Davis case to the holding. That's where it finally won when the ideas of the progressives were finally instituted by the Supreme Court in 1937. That was the ultimate triumph of Hamiltonianism. And yet, I wouldn't even call it a triumph of Hamiltonianism, because if you read Hamilton carefully enough, his understanding of uh, expansive government was l much more limited than the progressives' understanding. Of, of, of expansive government. It dealt largely with foreign affairs and with the need for a large commercial republic under a commerce clause that, to be sure, was broader than I think Elizabeth or I would, would uh, uh, countenance, but nonetheless is nothing like what we have today under the commerce clause. I, I guess I would just point back to Hamilton's memo to Washington and the fact that 
George Washington, the founder of our country, yeah. endorsed those views. And then, well, you well know, let me just say something about George Washington as founder of the country. Okay. He, he, he's, I mean, he's called that, but you know, if you are into the founders, you know, you don't, in fact, I look, I remember going into the University of Michigan Law Library trying to find something substantive that George Washington wrote. He did not write anything substantive. He was like a, he was the guy everybody liked. But he didn't think big thoughts. You don't read volumes of philosophy from George Washington. Uh, he's just, he was not an intellectual powerhouse. He was the guy everybody could agree on to be the founder of the country. He looked good in front of the camera, so to speak, and, uh, and, and, he, and nobody hated him. Um, but he's not like a founder the way Madison is, the way Jefferson is, or the way the Hamilton is. Uh, and I will just say also, I mean, just make sure, be careful. Chief Justice John Marshall, um, when he wrote McCulloch in 1819, he's not a founder. Hmm. He's not a founder and by any stretch of the imagination. So you can't cite him as one of the founding fathers. Uh, uh, Michael, you wanted to... Well, I, was, I had minor cavils with uh, each of the other speakers. Uh, I, I, I was going to mention, I think, that uh, Doug Miss spoke on the date of McCulloch v. Maryland, um, the kind of mistake I find myself more and more frequently making. Uh, the, uh, Elizabeth uh, fails to note that um, the Second Bank of the United States uh, bill, um, which was at issue in McCulloch v. Maryland, uh, was signed by President Madison. Uh, so he, he, he changed his mind. Uh, yeah, and did you read why? I mean, when he when he explained why he wrote uh, a series. I have not read why. And he explained it, and, and basically he said it's because we have invested too much. It's 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 the it's too late idea. His his articulation was we have um, so much reliance now in the Bank of the United States. It would be uh, folly for me to sort of be, be, be Don Quixote. That's right. But he said, you know, look, uh, to, to, to go back and revisit that is like tilting at the windmill. And that's sort of what Doug was saying is that, you know, after we've done these things, after we've made these mistakes, uh, it's too late. You know, we, we, we just acquiesce. We have reliance. Um, and I just don't think you're supposed to do that with your social charter. Yeah, Jackson did. Said it's not too late. Well, Jackson was vetoing a bill at a time when it was generally thought politically that that the only um, justifiable reason for a presidential veto was a, a belief that the act was unconstitutional. I mean, we we come that's later to vetoes of that's right. things on policy grounds come to be seen as legitimate. And the argument was made against Jackson that no, the, your constitutional arguments are just make weights for your political preference. Right. All right, let's have some uh, questions from the audience, please. If you could uh, 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 wait till the microphone gets here, identify yourself and any uh, affiliation that you may have. Adam, you want to? Uh, right here. Adam Powell from the University of Southern California. Uh, Professor Foley and uh, Michael Verone. Yeah, it's on. Your uh, discussion invites what might be called the David Brooks question, uh, uh, which is, why isn't Obama being crushed? Why are the polls even close? Uh, is it uh, 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 hate the sin, love the sinner, or is that going to start to unravel with, uh, with uh, gay marriage? 
Uh, I mean, that's a great question. I, I don't make any pretense that the Tea Party is the vast bulk of the American population. I do think that they are uh, a minority and, uh, and, a, and, in fact, a minority even amongst Republicans. I mean, I can't tell you how many establishment Republican friends I have uh, to this day who sort of look at me quizzically and say, really? You like the Tea Party? And my response to them is always, you better like the Tea Party, too, because they're the only American people out there right now who really understand or are trying to understand the Constitution. A Constitution that you yourself uh, say that you espouse and embrace. Uh, so they're on your side. But I think there's this um, establishment Republican suspicion about the Tea Party. They're afraid that the Tea Party is going to take over Washington and that they're going to be too ruthless in adhering to their principles because they are a movement of principles rather than politics. And that may not bode so well for some establishment Republicans. So uh, even within the Republican ranks, they're a minority, a powerful one. Yeah, well, still the, a the politicians. Politicians generally don't like uh, new people. I mean, I've compared the Tea Party movement to the peace movement of the late 60s and early 70s. Both started off as purportedly nonpartisan, but quickly gravitated to one of the two political major parties. Uh, both uh, brought, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people into political activity over a very major issue, war and peace size and scope of government, not peripheral matters, but very substantive matters on which their views were not crazy. Uh, and uh, both brought uh, a lot of, you know, um, solid citizens and some that turned out to have uh, good political instincts. You also get a, but when you have a mass movement of that sort, you also get a certain number of wackos, weirdos, and witches. Uh, the uh, Obama, why is Obama competitive? Uh, I think Americans want to think well of their presidents. Uh, you have a, you know, a, uh, I think that, uh, you, you know, you have a body of, of people that are pretty well committed to the Democratic Party, which is, you know, has been running at least 40 to 45 percent, and they're going to mostly sticking with him at the moment, very high percentage. Uh, I think that um, in 2008 there was a, Obama benefited on balance from a feeling on the part of a majority of Americans that at least in the abstract, it would be a good thing if America elected a black president. And I think something like that is, that's understandable in light of our history. And I think that uh, there's a feeling unquantifiable among many voters that it would be too bad for America to be seen as rejecting the first black president. I think that factor works for President Obama to some unknowable extent uh, on balance that it probably outweighs uh, the dwindling number of people who simply would never vote for a black person but would vote otherwise for a candidate of similar views and background. Question right up here. My name is Stephen Shore. Two brief questions. Could one really throw out 200 years of American jurisprudence and have a, did the, uh, a vision of returning to a, 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 the Constitution being the legal of sola scripturum of the Founding Fathers leaving Philadelphia in the same spirit of, of Joseph Smith coming down a mountaintop with golden tablets that were not to be interfered with. And my second question is the paradox of power that even if the Tea Party were to be the decisive force in electing Mitt Romney, once Mitt Romney or anyone was in power, wouldn't the Tea Party essentially serve as useful idiots um, 
putting someone in power with all the temptations that power affords. For example, Jefferson, I think, was never convinced of the constitutionality of the Louisiana Purchase, and thank God he didn't think about it, but actually bought Louisiana. So uh, isn't this an absolute shimmer, both in terms of legal jurisprudence and in terms of how people actually behave when they get power, even if they were put into power by people believing in limited government? That's to you, Elizabeth. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I, I disagree with your premise of 200 years of you know consistent constitutional jurisprudence. I, I don't think that that is accurate. If anything, it's been relatively consistent since the switch in time in 1937. Uh, I'll give you that. Um, but even then, you, you have uh, moments, right, where the court um, swings the pendulum back the other way, beginning probably in 1995, I believe it was, with U.S. v. Lopez, the Gun-Free School Zones Act case, uh, where they invalidated uh, that exercise of, of the commerce power. Um, so this is an ongoing debate. So I, I don't think any side can uh, claim that they've had 200 years of jurisprudence under their belt uh, and that everybody sees thing, uh, things the way they do. Um, but, uh, I, I, but that doesn't mean the debate needs to stop just because, you know, the progressives won in 1937 doesn't mean there's no debate anymore. Uh, like I said, uh, I don't think it's time to get over it. Um, in terms of your second question, I don't actually remember what it was. <laughs> what was it? It's if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. What, who somebody said something <laughs> like that? It's the uh, on the first point. Mitt Romney is not. Yeah, an angel. what's what's Romney going to do? You know, I I don't know. I mean, I do I do see Romney, and I saw this after the Iowa caucuses. I, I listened very carefully to his speech, and then I printed it out. Uh, and I highlighted the number of times that he said founding fathers and constitution, and it was a shocking number uh, because he's not known as that kind of guy. He's not known as a Tea Party type of guy. Um, but I think uh, if you listen to what he's saying carefully, he is uh, trying to court uh, this important group of people uh, by, by walking the walk and talking the talk. The, the, the problem that Tea Partiers have with Mitt Romney is they don't believe he's sincere, uh, and only time will tell that. Uh, but they will be as ruthless with him uh, as they are with other establishment Republicans. Besides that, there is a distinction to be drawn between going back to the Constitution of the founders and going back to the Constitution as amended. Uh, a big difference there, especially with respect to the Civil War amendments. Doug? Yeah, if I can just respond to the first question um, a little bit. I, I don't really think there is ever a point where you can, there's any sort of statute of limitations on making a valid constitutional argument. And, sure. and um, to give one example of that, um, my organization in the um, uh, McDonald case, the case about whether the Second Amendment is incorporated against the states, my organization filed a brief on behalf of scholars ranging from Jack Balkin to Steve Calabresi and, um, uh, and Randy Barnett arguing for a restoration of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which I think is unquestionably the vehicle by which the Constitution protects substantive fundamental rights and incorporates those rights against state action. Um, that is, there's a pretty amazing consensus by scholars across the political spectrum that that's the right answer. And I don't think that just because the Supreme Court in 1873, I think I'm getting the date of that, of the Slaughterhouse case correctly in this, uh, in this context, I don't think just because the Supreme Court decided it in 1873, that debate is, is appropriately ended. Um, my point about M McCullough is different. It's that this was, this was a debate that was fiercely fought in the f original founding administration, 
you know, arbitrated by George Washington and decided by the Marshall Supreme Court. And you know, whatever you want to say about Washington and his intellect or Marshall uh, and whether he was a founder or not, um, they are two of the most distinguished um, founding fathers we have. Um, and they, they determined that the National Bank was constitutional, I thought. Uh, Michael's point was incredibly important about Madison uh, signing the second bank. Um, and I, I guess it's just at some point, you know, whether there are two sides of that argument, one side won. And we have a country that's built on that one side winning. And I think it really gets to the point where you're undermining the United States of America when you're saying it doesn't have the power to create a national bank or a Federal Reserve at this point. And that's really my beef with what, you know, what Professor Foley does in page 28 of this book, which is try to reopen that question. She tries to argue about uh, Obamacare, et cetera, but you know, the, in t page 28, she wants to relitigate McCullough. And I think that's a dangerous thing to do. Let me just say a word here on behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Um, the only major denomination I'm aware of that's founded in the United States, or one of the few Seventh-day Adventists, I guess, or another, um, is that they also have, it's not just Joseph Smith and the Golden Tablets, they have a process of amendment uh, analogous to, I guess, to Article 5, which is that uh, you, you, the church has had revelations in uh, the, the, the apostles, the leaders of the church, uh, have had a revelation uh, getting rid of polygamy, uh, which was followed a few years in 1890, which was followed uh, six years later by the admission of Utah to the Union as a state. Uh, and they had a revelation in 1978 that uh, uh, the exclusion of blacks from the priesthood, from the adult male full membership in the church uh, was no longer valid. One last question. Anna, you had a question, yes. Thank you, Anna Stump. Just a very quick question on Tea Party's alleged um, isolationist foreign policy, because you seem to make the case against that in your book. And uh, when I talk to Tea Party people, I, I have the feeling that that is really where the fiscal responsibility and austerity principle clashes with the principle of, of or wish of U.S. global leadership. Um, so there is a continuum here between sort of the neocon position and the isolationist position, and the media tries to or overwhelmingly portrays the Tea Party as isolationist, which I don't have the feeling is true. But um, where do you think, um, in truth, they actually stand? Is, is the isolationist wing strong enough, or will it, will it gain strength as... Um, as you, you keep being in a fiscal responsible, uh, fiscal austerity mode here in the United States, and what does that mean uh, for the rest of the world? So where is the Tea Party in that continu con continuum, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good question. It, it's hard to capture um, entirely, but, but because you do find some Tea Partiers who I would say are isolationists, uh, and they generally support, for example, Ron Paul <laughs> for president. Um, but you also see, if you look at the polling data in the Republican primaries amongst those who are self-identified as Tea Partiers, um, they are not overwhelmingly going for Ron Paul. Uh, and when you ask them why, if you go to some of their meetings, one of the things that they will tell you is that they disagree with his isolationist foreign policy. 
Um, and so uh, I, I think there are a healthy number of Tea Partiers who, in fact, uh, reject that isolationism precisely because they think it undermines U.S. sovereignty. Uh, and for example, when I talk in the book about their positions on Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya, uh, and I don't talk about the drone strikes, for example, uh, Doug, because uh, I, I say in the introduction to the book, I don't talk about those because the Tea Partiers don't talk about those. They don't talk about those because they like them. Uh, they like the drone strikes. So um, they're actually supporting President Obama on that. Um, and but when you parse the difference between Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya, for example, uh, what you find is that uh, they were very concerned about Libya when it happened. Uh, and one of the reasons I think they were so concerned is because they thought that the way President Obama articulated uh, his decision making was that he was saying, um, as commander in chief, I don't feel comfortable sending in American troops onto foreign soil in Libya without UN approval. And that's what got their ire up. They, uh, they heard that and they said to themselves, aha, here's a, you know, quote unquote, socialist president, that's the way they would characterize him, uh, who, who doesn't believe as our commander in chief that he has the authority under Article 2 uh, to go in there and defend our interests. He thinks he has to get the blessing of some supranational body like the UN Security Council before he does it. That bothered them. So that tells me that they're, they're concerned about sovereignty and that, that principle, uh, and, and they're not motivated by isolationism. All right, we're going to now uh, go upstairs for lunch. Uh, again, the book is available at a discount. Uh, Elizabeth will be glad to sign it for you. Um, just take the sp spiral staircase up to the second floor and to the uh, George M. Yeager uh, Conference Center for lunch. And let's uh, conclude with a good round of applause for our speakers. <laughs>